The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willett. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience, I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Hi everybody, how you doing? Thanks for tuning back into the show, you know I always appreciate it. A couple milestones, we just crossed 100,000 listens for the Piercing Wizard podcast, so thank you so very much for that. Uh, I, I never really expected to keep the show going for as long as I have, or to have so many different people say that you know the, the show was influential for them, helped them with their career, or just made them feel like they were part of the industry when they, they didn't before. So thank you very much to the uh, however many thousands of people listen to the show and however many times you listen to it over and over again to uh, get me to 100,000 listens. This isn't a show that I produce for like the general public. I don't really think there's a lot of interest for people to know about what's going on in the professional body piercing industry. So this show is very much made for body piercers, people who are working in shops, people who are working with jewelry companies. Uh, so thank you very much for listening to it. 100,000 listens means a lot to me. So I'm going to try to make this show uh, worthwhile and, and worth tuning into every week. So thanks. My guest this week is going to be James Weber. James is the owner of Infinite Body Piercing in Philadelphia and soon to be opening in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, They just crossed their 25th uh, anniversary line uh, earlier in February, so we talk a lot about the changes over 25 years in our industry. If you flash back to the 1990s, the industry was a completely different animal. Even into the early 2000s, a lot of the things that are there right now for us uh, logistically in the industry weren't there at the time. Different manufacturers, different jewelry companies, different suppliers. So uh, it's really changed a lot. The the fashion has changed. The available staff has changed. The the techniques and the methods and so much has changed. So it's really interesting to hear the perspective of a, a shop who's been open that long, but also has been an industry leader for a really long time. We talk about how uh, the the used to work at Infinite list is kind of a who's who. Lots of different piercers, so many that I don't really want to list a few and, and miss out on the many. But um, chances are, uh, you've already listened to maybe a half a dozen interviews of people who have worked at Infinite. If you're a regular listener to this show, uh, lots of them have been on, and especially in some of the the more recent episodes, uh, former staff members of Infinite have uh, have been featured on the show. So we talk about uh, what it takes to keep a shop open and strong for that long, how you hire people or are you training people, just different things about growth and and the change of the industry, but also um, the motivation that got James into body piercing. What was the the body piercing culture uh, like in, in the 1990s when he started getting into body piercing as a profession? So it's a pretty interesting conversation with James Weber from Infinite Body Piercing. A uh, couple things that I can announce. Uh, Yo, know, classes. Everybody knows uh, if you listen to the show regularly, you know, ad nauseum, I talk about my classes. If you're interested in any of them, go ahead and follow Body Art Education by Ryan Willett on Facebook or go to precisionbodyarts.com seminars. 
as this posts, I'll probably be heading into my class in Concord, California. After that, I have a few out of the country. I'm going to be doing one in Dusseldorf, Germany, and another in uh, Manchester in England. Uh, those should be pretty fun. And then I'm going to get back to my regular classes at home. I do have my uh, my Doth piercing class, Daith piercing class, however you want to pronounce it, at the Boston Tattoo Convention coming up in April. Uh, but other than that, I have to start thinking about where I want to go and where I want to teach classes. I think I'm going to put New Jersey on hold for now. Uh, I do want to get there uh, in the short term. I do want to get there as soon as possible. But I think I'm going to start paying attention to uh, maybe Canada a little bit more. I definitely want to get to Montreal as soon as it is a as soon as it's not quite so frigid there. And then I want to get out to maybe the Ontario area. And I really want to get out to Western Canada. I've had some people reach out to me and say that they're interested in some classes in uh, you know BC or. Uh, Alberta, somewhere around there. So I definitely want to do a little bit more in Canada during uh, during the spring and summer months. A big thing that I can announce if you're a fan of the show and you plan to be at the APP conference is I'm going to be doing a, a live session of the Piercing Wizard podcast in Las Vegas as an official part of the APP conference. It'll be part of the alternative to the bar, nighttime entertainment. So if you didn't want to hang around the bar, if you don't want to have a drink in your hand, Come and sit down, uh, listen to the conversation. I'm going to have a couple of different special guests. It's going to be a little bit different than the regular on-air uh, show format. I'm going to have multiple guests. We'll talk about multiple subjects. I'll have like little snippets. Somebody here for 15 minutes, somebody here for 20 minutes. And I want to get your input as to what we should be talking about. Uh, I don't want to get into anything like too controversial and start any arguments, but if there's something that uh, you know we're not talking about on this show and, and you want to hear about, uh, especially if you're going to be in Las Vegas and you want to hear me talk about like a specific industry issue or if you want me to interview a specific industry figure, uh, someone who's a, a regular, a long-timer, new in the industry, shop owner, jewelry manufacturer, I, I want to hear what you want to hear. So uh, go ahead and reach out to me at ryanpba@gmail.com. But if you're going to be in Vegas, set some time aside for Piercing Wizard Podcast Live at the APP Conference in Las Vegas. For now, I'm, I'm going to stop rambling and let's just get into this interview with James Weber from Infinite. And I'll be back a little bit more at the end. My name is James Weber. I am the founder and owner of Infinite Body Piercing in Philadelphia. Um, our social media, for the most part, is infinitebody.com or infinitebody at infinitebody across most platforms, and our website is infinitebody.com. So you just had a big anniversary. Was it last week? Yeah, it was the first of February. Uh, was twenty five years of us opening the the brick and mortar shop location. That's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, part of what I wanted to talk to you about is just. Number one, uh, the perspective of seeing a, a business and not being a small shop, a slow shop, but being like one of the, the leaders in the industry, what kind of changes you might have seen. And then I, I'd also like to talk to you about, uh, maybe not specifics, but uh, how you've had so much staff through the shop over the years and how do you maintain like a, a consistent level of service. So wh what was it like when you, when you opened Infinite, uh, like the industry then versus the industry now? Oh God. Um, well, this uh, obviously our interview came about because I did a, a blog post about our 25 year anniversary on infinitebody.com. So you, I, I talk there a little bit about sort of what it was like in the beginning and through the years, but it was obviously a lot different. Um, to backtrack a little bit, I, I got interested in body piercing when I was in college and doing a jewelry program. And at that point, 
Um, it was the classic story, like I had pierced myself and then came across this sort of larger community and was like, oh my God, this exists out there. This is great. And um, was piercing sort of myself and friends because there really wasn't anything out there. Um, piercing was really still a West Coast phenomenon. Um, there was the gauntlet and there were a couple other shops. I think Body M was around at that point. But for a kid that was going to college in Philadelphia, there was really nothing um, Raylan Galena used to come through town every so often, about once a year on trips. And this was in like, oh, I guess it was like 91, 92. Um, so there really wasn't much available at all. It's, it's and, weird to think about it because, you know, number one, Philadelphia is such a, a major city with, you know, so much yeah. of like a arts community and free expression and stuff. But it, you really have to flash back to like, Okay, 1990 to 1995, the, the industry hadn't really formed yet. There were there were a few shops scattered across the country, but it wasn't really what we'd think of today as like an industry, like being able to buy supplies, jewelry, needles, like that really didn't have much of an infrastructure yet at that point. Yeah, not at all. There really wasn't a shop that I knew of on that coast, much less in the city or state. Um, I think at that point, Wild Bill who started Pleasurable Piercings was piercing in New York, but I hadn't heard of him. Um, there was one jewelry store in the area with a primarily gay clientele where you could go in and they had gold nipple jewelry, but it was like this sort of – not poorly made, but it was – it was made by a jewelry jeweler without any knowledge of piercing. So it was like internally threaded and really, or sorry, externally threaded and very rough. Yeah. Um, the tattoo shop I heard that did piercing, but it was like the woman who I think was like the girlfriend of one of the tattoo artists. And you went in and you're greeted by like a gruff biker. And, you know, I was the skinny art school kid and I was like, Hey, do you guys do piercing? And, you know, he really didn't want, to talk about it at all because it was still very much in the domain of sort of the gay underground. Right. Um, and the thing that really changed that was modern primitives when that book came out, at least regionally, you know, I can't really speak about what it did everywhere else, but I feel like that was really what took it from sort of the gay underground to like the punk rock art school guy underground Yeah. and sort of expanded that audience. It was weird kind of uh, getting into body piercing around the mid to late 90s for myself. It was right after that modern primitives wave had kind of crashed over the country. And I think it was right at this time of counterculture with, you know, punk and grunge and industrial and all these different kinds of things. And people latched onto body piercing as a, a means of self-expression. But um, I, I was a little bit, it was a little bit before my time when it was more connected to the, the queer community. So it must have been kind of an interesting transition when it went from maybe tattoo shops that wanted to offer it as like the add-on service where if somebody's partner was waiting for them getting a tattoo, maybe, yeah, we'll do a, a nostril piercing or a navel piercing, maybe a nipple piercing every now and then, but it, it wasn't really set up to be something for counterculture yet at that point. So, uh, what was it, what was it like when you kind of realized that wider world of body piercing was out there? Um, well, in the beginning, it was, it was definitely the gay community. You know, I'd grown up as a, you know, mostly straight kid from Jersey. And, um, I found myself ultimately sort of apprenticing at a leather shop, you know, with these big sort of muscular gay men with the, the classic like early nineties nipple piercings that were like half an inch into the areola with like right. six gauge, you know? Yeah. And, um, 
and then I would go to see Ray Lynn, which was a very much um, women's spaces. So I was really for I was really passionate about piercing, but I was an outlier because I was coming from sort of the punk artsy community, mm-hmm. and I was very much a visitor in these communities of what were at the time real sort of sexual minorities, I guess. And I think that was part of the excitement. It was it was it was something exotic. Even seeing those early gauntlet. Um, getting the first brochure and seeing those ads, it was like this other culture that was so exotic, these other people. And then it really, and then the tattoo shops realized that you could make a lot of money off of it um, and started offering it. And it, it very much changed because it, it went from this uh, sort of practice of this community of either women or gay men into and sort of pull that into tattoo shops. And it really, it it became very male very quickly, which was disappointing for me where, um, you know, tattoo shops before they sort of, uh, before the Renaissance, there was still the holdover of sort of the gruff biker sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, what you would call sort of like a toxic masculinity now, but this, this, I don't know. I, I was a little disappointed to see it sort of co-opted by that space because it was something special to me, I guess, in this other community. Um, I don't know if that totally makes sense. But yeah, the, the transition was – it was strange. It was weird. It was – it went from um, you know, walking into a tattoo shop and asking about piercing and being told like you – know, not always in those words, but oh, we don't do that faggot shit. Uh. And you know, several years later, like if you wanted a piercing, you had to go in a tattoo shop. So it, yeah, it transitioned really quickly. Um, basically, it the I talk about it a little bit in the blog post, but sort of the watershed moment was that Aerosmith video coming out in '93. Right. And I feel like it went from, you know, this fringe fringe thing where there were piercers who just did it because they loved it and lost money at every turn to it being a really viable sort of way to make money and um it, yeah it, it definitely lost something in there a little bit because with as it got popular there weren't enough people to do it so there really was this huge demand and there was a lot of encouragement for people that really didn't quite know what they were doing or really didn't have that passion inherent to sort of start piercing yeah there was a there was a lot of leeway because I think when it when it changed from being something that was maybe for a specific community to something that was like seen as more of a commodity where it's like okay this is a service let's just find a way to fit this into the shop uh there there weren't 20 different piercers out there that like like today if you think of it if a if a solid shop wants to hire a piercer they can put the word out they can get people in for for guesting and tryouts and all this stuff but 20 years ago, 25 years ago, it wasn't like that. It was like, okay, we need a body piercer. So do you want to learn how to pierce? And, and it's like, well, okay, but we're not really going to necessarily teach you. We're just going to kind of throw you in the deep end. Yeah. Or we'll teach you, but you can start by yourself next Tuesday. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very much like that. And yeah, the, the, the general public, there was no internet and the general public 
really didn't know any better. So you had everything from like decent shops to like hacks at tattoo shops to people doing navels with ear piercing guns. And you know, you'd get mad at the situation and you'd get mad at people doing navels with ear piercing guns, but clients really didn't know better. And a lot of times the the guy, the people doing piercings with piercing guns didn't know any better either. Sure. So it was tough. It was yeah, the demand basically far outstripped the supply of competent people to do it. You can really see that in today's industry still because it's uh, for a lot of people, it's generational information. So it's like, I learned from someone who learned from someone who learned yeah. from someone. So if they start at that place where it's like, oh, okay, well, we need a piercer. Why don't you just start piercing? If that's where it starts and then eventually they train someone, eventually tra they train someone and they don't really try to step outside of that lineage, uh, that's when you can get shops today that are still doing the same stuff 20, 25 years later. They're, you're, you're definitely going to still find maybe to a lesser extent, but you're still going to find those accessory stores doing anything that they can squeeze into a piercing gun. So it's yeah. it's weird seeing the progression of shops like yours who have taken it to this like Mastercraft level, and then there are these other shops where it's just like, it's still just like, oh yeah, it's a piercing, who cares, kind of a thing. And, and seeing both of those still existing in today's industry can be really stark for some people. Yeah, and well, we were really lucky too in that we did start so early. So in a lot of ways, we were really able to sort of define the industry a lot of ways in Philly. Um, we were able to work with the Board of Health when they did regulations, which really did a lot to help stop the piercing guns, doing navels and even cartilage. Um, we were friends of ours did one of the first acrylic jewelry companies at the time which you know looking back now is pretty horrible but but back then in the early 90s like it was a cheap and easy way to stretch your ears so philly has really a long history of stretched ears much more so than even a lot of other places um and and i think with that too you have a lot of people in philly that are older and transition from being, you know, young and pierced and rebellious to now being, you know, older, good job families, but still pierced. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, I feel like it doesn't quite have the stigma in a lot of places of just being sort of part of your rebellious youth that you see a lot more professionals with like stretched ears or, or even large visible tattoos or throat tattoos. You know, I'm always... In Philadelphia, you know, you can go to the Starbucks and see people with throat tattoos or the Whole Foods with, you know, half-inch ears and traveling around other spaces in the country. I forget that's not always the case everywhere else. Sure. You know, we, yeah, we have the luxury there for sure. Yeah, and some of the larger cities, like you can have people where they've gone through their uh, their teen years, their 20 years, and then as they've, they've kind of blossomed into an actual functioning adult – they're still wearing their body jewelry proudly and that can really change a lot of minds. You know, when you, when you can articulate something, when you're going into a bank and taking out loans, when you're buying brand new cars and you're still covered in body piercings, uh, that can change a lot of minds where people stop seeing it as something as like, you know, it's something that only junkies would get or scumbags or like little kids. Or even, yeah, young punk rockers who haven't grown up yet. Sure. You know, and I think the the transition to gold jewelry now has has done a lot of that too. You know, I'm sure you remember from the 90s, it was all big gauge steel and spikes and you know four gauge horseshoes in your ears and things. And and now to see a transition to to less machined jewelry and more like goldsmithed jewelry is mm -hmm. has been interesting too. Aside from just the craftsmanship angle of it, sometimes I miss. 
I miss the '90s aesthetic sometimes. Not not all of it because I had a terrible aesthetic in the '90s. But like, <laughs> we all did. yeah. But like some of that, the big chunky jewelry, the stuff that you're not really ever going to see in gold. Um, like nobody's. Well, maybe occasionally those like unicorn clients, but not a lot of people are going to be getting like double zero gauge circular barbells in in gold. So. I do miss a little bit of the 90s style. I see it come back a little bit. I would I would really like to see more people talking about uh, genital piercings and mm-hmm. surface piercings and large gauge piercings more than they are now. I think when body piercing really skewed heavily into that fashion space, I think it was amazing for the industry. I think a lot of us made it it made it much easier for us to grow our businesses and expand more staff and give them better lives and everything, but I still miss a little bit of that connection to the act of getting pierced rather than the act of wearing jewelry. Mm. Yeah, and and the 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 tie into the sexuality of the whole thing too. I definitely miss that. And I I I talked to some of the younger staff members about that too and you know that was a big reason I got into it this sort of self-expression and expression of sexuality and you know the early 90s were a crazy time with sexuality and AIDS and and you know the politics of AIDS and act up and you know the leather community and and all sorts of stuff and piercing tied in there and it's really sort of lost a lot of that um there I have certain theories you know I think as Americans, as a culture, we tend to sort of de desexualize things. We take the sex out of it, you know, to make it sort of more palpable. Um, but I, I feel like piercing, at least in the beginning, was sort of it, it had sort of two paths, you know. It had sort of to, to simplify it. I think it had sort of like the Jim Ward path, which was all about sex, sexuality, and expression, and it had the Fakir path, which was more about ritual and trying to like tap into sort of this this primal urge. Mm-hmm. And they existed concurrently for a while, but I, I feel like the the main narrative now has become this modern primitive narrative. This is the like back to the primitive. And the sexuality part is really not not a big part of it anymore. And and I definitely miss that, you know, along with the the large gauge genital piercings and things like that. But the uh, you know the yeah the expression of sexuality in the industry I, I definitely miss compared to back in the '90s for sure. I think part of it is is a communication thing. Uh, every now and then you'll get the clients that'll come into the shop and it's like, you know that what they want is something either sexually functional or something, there's some sort of gratification level to it for them. But sometimes people don't want to articulate that or explain that. Um, you can tell sometimes by like what people are getting. Like people aren't going to come in for like a, a, a heavy gauge geesh piercing just because, yeah. you know. Um, but starting the conversations with those people uh like when they're not starting it by asking for a certain thing can be really difficult so i think a lot of clientele i think a lot of piercers might not really fully understand the sexual functionality side of it and and not just the functionality side of it but the gratification side of it you know it's funny to me when you say the the jim ward path and the fakir path because i i think a lot of people do know fakirs maybe some of his personal motivations were very sexually driven um, yeah, but when sure. it comes to the expression of like those schools of thought, yeah, the fakir is more connecting to the spirit and the gauntlet side is maybe more connecting to the sexuality of it. And uh, I think now it's really people are thinking, well, what's the most expensive piece of jewelry? What's the what's the most expensive piece of gold or something like that? And I don't know how to steer that conversation back towards the personal side of body piercing without 
maybe making some people uncomfortable in the conversation or maybe stepping over boundaries. It's difficult to kind of open up that, that, uh, conversation sometimes. Yeah. Well, I feel too, I, I used to get more frustrated that I felt like clients weren't, um, either taking their, their piercing seriously enough or just doing it for some sort of like fashionable throw off reason or whatever. But, but then you, I think you do realize that, that it is such a powerful, powerful ritual for people. And one, if people could really verbalize why they do it, they wouldn't really have to do it. Like it transcends a lot of verbalizing or mm -hmm. transcends vocabulary and language. And number two, I, I think a lot of people, um, it, it's still an important, an important sort of transformative act, even if on a sort of conscious level, they don't realize it. So I, I try not to be too critical of what would appear to be people's motivations for stuff. Cause I, I think it's still buried in there. I think there's still the good stuff in there, even though, you know, they may be like, Oh, I just want something pink to match my favorite outfit sort of outward motivation, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily want to question people's motivations for it because if they want to get something for any reason, that that's their choice. But uh, when it comes to maybe there, there are people out there who maybe it would uh, fulfill something for them. Maybe it would enrich their lives or something, but they don't. They just don't know that that's an option because the industry is so like no pun intended sterilized lately. You know, people are people are paying attention rightly so to what they say and how they say it and who they say it to. And, you know, they don't want to, I don't know, maybe put people in a, a sexually charged conversation without their express interest. But, uh, I think that there are a lot of clients out there that might miss out on the opportunities. You know, they might be getting something because that body piercing is so accessible, but they might not know of the other things out there that would really kind of, uh, unlock something for them. I just don't know how to really, I don't know how to connect to those clients quite as much or, or connect them to the things that they don't know are obviously available because like our display cases are full of gold and fancy sparkly stuff. They're not full of like, you know, gigantic slave ring, heavy gauge, this and that or whatever. And, um, I don't know. I just, I just want people to be able to think about all their, their options. No, I, I, yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's, you know, we had that debate when we were redoing the site, and I talked to a lot of piercers too. The you know debate of whether you put genital piercings on your site and whether you put genital photos on your site, because you know sometimes it's going to trigger parental filters. Sometimes you're going to have people that want to access the site that can't. Um, but for us, it's you know that that sexuality and and genital piercings are so important to what we do and sort of inform everything else um, that. Like you said, yeah. Even if you're getting a navel piercing, it's we tr we hope to sort of be able to expose people to the full experience or the full range of stuff they can get for sure. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I definitely hear what you're talking about. So when it comes to um, your, the growth of your studio, you know, like when you when you started the studio, you might have been in maybe this a similar position to a lot of other shops where it's just like okay, I've got a, I've got a storefront now. What do I do with it? Like when, when did you kind of feel that there was this upswell and growth? Did, was it kind of steady for you from the beginning? Was it, was it consistent growth or was it something like, okay, now I need to really double down on adulting and bring in new staff, bring in new, this <laughs> like remodel things. Like what was some of the, the transitional moments in the shop like for you? 
Um, we were really lucky in that we were pretty pretty good from the get go. Not crazy busy, but but comfortably busy. Um, we had I had started the shop with another piercer and another counterperson. We had both worked in another studio in the city, so we had a certain client base. Um, yeah, so we we just sort of con- we did okay. Um, it's funny because I, I talked to some of the shop owners that are still around us that were there 25 years ago, and they all say the same thing: like, oh, we we would talk to each other. Like, well, there's no way a body piercing shop is going to survive. This is the dumbest idea ever. Um, but yeah, but right out of the gate, we did pretty well. I mean, we had pretty humble origins. We uh, I opened the shop at this point, looking back, at, with about 15 grand. Um, we had a good relationship with pleasurable piercings at the time and they actually fronted us most of our inventory. So we were sort of on a shoestring budget. We weren't paying ourselves a whole lot. And, uh, yeah. And we, we sort of, we had the luxury of doing okay from the get go, really. Um, not to say we didn't have a sort of wake up call about adulting later because, you know, starting a shop with your friends at 24 is really hard. Um, especially if you want any sort of especially if you want to make it a business and not like a place to hang out for sure. Yeah. I know how that goes. I, I stumbled my way into uh, owning a shop at 21 and I had, I had no business running a bit, you know, I I could, I could pierce somewhat proficiently, but uh, I had no idea what I was doing as a business owner for years and years and years. And uh, you know, seeing, seeing the growth of your shop, especially in a city like Philadelphia where there's going to be no shortage of clientele, especially like cool clientele that you can educate and that you can really create this like, uh, you know, piercing culture, you know, and and infinite was really seen as like a hub of that culture in, in the Northeast for a long time. So when, when did you really start to think of like, you know, okay, this is more than I want to do, um, like as, as the piercer. And then you started to kind of bring in other staffing. Um, to sort of make it bigger than ourselves, I guess. Is that your question or? Yeah, kind of. I'm just trying to get a a good sense of, you know, when you, when you went from that, we opened a shop, let's try to keep the shop open kind of phase to like, okay, the shop's open and we need a lot more help. Like what, what were some of the transitional moments there? Um, it was actually a pretty, a pretty slow transition. You know, we had one woman that helped us out with a build and we ended up hiring her on as counter staff. Um, and then I think we hired another counter staff member and ended up apprenticing him, which was sort of a looking back was sort of a much easier decision than now where we just don't have the time. Um, but then we hired, I think one of our early hires was John Cobb, which really, I think sort of changed the, changed the feel of everything. And we really, I think we realized that we were sort of creating something bigger than ourselves, that this was a big deal. And and looking back, it's weird. Like, you know, we had like John Cobb doing crazy stuff. We have Steve, Steve Hayworth going, coming in all the time. I attended the early ModCon stuff. Um, and we were really sort of um, trailblazing a lot. But at that point, we were just sort of like doing what we loved and really passionate about it. So, um I guess to answer your question, I'm not really sure. Well, I, you know, I think not to say that any of it was luck because I know a lot of it was hard work, but I think it was just such a such a perfect time to start. Oh, you were at the right place at the right time for sure. Yeah, that kind of business, that kind of city uh, with that kind of culture because like that was right around the time that BME was really coming into its own and exploding and Philadelphia was a huge hub for like the BME crowd, you know, and uh having people in like 
John Cobb, somebody who's really innovative, has all these new ideas, somebody like Steve Hayworth, who's like pushing the boundaries of, of what body art is and everything. Uh, and it, I remember it as being pretty memorable, you know, hearing hearing the shop name come up in most conversations about, uh, you know, hey, this shop is doing this and hey, this shop is doing this and hey, did you see what, what they're doing at Infinite and everything? So now it seems like uh, if you look back at Imagine over all the piercers you've had in that 25-year period, it's kind of like a who's who list of, of body piercing. Yeah, we've had a lot of amazing people through. I was, as I was doing sort of the the blog post and talking about the last 25 years, I was trying to, I, I debated like just starting listing all these sort of influential people and, and it would have been such a huge list and, and it would have been hard not to omit anybody. So it was either, you know, not really talk about too many specific people or just do a whole post about like the hundred plus people that have been through. Right. Um, but you know, we've had a whole lot of people. We've had a bunch of people, you know, that pierced for a while and dropped out of the industry, but a bunch of people that started their own shops or went on to do other stuff or managed other shops or yeah it's it's been neat and um we've had the opportunity to have a whole lot of people through um that have i guess have grown up with us in the shop as well and, and it's been amazing to sort of see where they've come from and to where they've gone since they've been there yeah you know there have there have been people again not to single anybody out because then it, it's kind of tough for the people that you don't single out. But um, there have been plenty of people that I've seen that have worked there maybe when they were younger themselves or, or younger as a, a body piercer and then seeing them, you know, have some success there, make a name for themselves and then kind of move on to the other things while they're kind of blossoming into adulthood and seeing where they, they come from. But, you know, it's still having that shared link of like the infinite thing. Like I, I talk to a lot of different piercers on this show I go to a lot of events, I do a lot of classes, and a lot of people, it, they'll just drop it into a conversation like, oh yeah, you know, and when I worked at Infinite for this six months or this <laughs> year, and I don't really think it's a coincidence. I think a shop like yours really nurtures people that are, are in it as a as a career and as like a passion and not just as a as a job. Yeah. Well, th thank you. I, I think that's, it. it's tough to do. I think as we, as we've grown up as a shop, we've gotten better and better at recognizing um not necessarily raw talent but but sort of people with a passion for piercing that just need a little extra push to be able to sort of fully realize what they want to do and that's that's definitely been pretty rewarding um i feel like yeah i feel like a proud dad in a lot of ways with that one for sure. so when when you have people you know to, to use the kind of like the dad analogy when people grow up and, and leave the nest or whatever What's it like having interpersonal dynamics with people like that? You know, some people might just be down the street, the other side of town. You might run into them at conference. Like, does sometimes that create tension or does it, is it kind of comfortable in a way where it's like, well, the, the, the person just kind of grew up and moved away from home? Um, it's sort of everything, you know, people we've, we've had the luxury of a lot of people leaving on really good terms, which has been great. We've had people leave obviously on not good terms. We've let people go. We've parted ways, you know, poorly. Um, in a lot of ways it's, it's been frustrating because infinite really, um, since we've only had the one location for so long, um, there's only so far you can go as an employee or as a piercer, you know, like um, after like six, seven, eight years, like you're not going to become regional manager. You're not going to get my <laughs> job. So uh, a lot of people, I think, sort of get to the point where they're ready to leave the nest with that, um, you know, after 
And those are people that a lot of whom have started their own shops too, which I, I talk about in the article, like like Kevin Jump or Clay out of uh, with Supernatural or Kellen now, um, or even Ed that just started his shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it's I, in some ways I wish I was bigger. In some ways I wish we were a chain so we could sort of retain these people and sort of give them positions and sort of you know, again, like a corporate office or something overseeing three studios or whatnot. But yeah, it often gets to the point where people just sort of outgrow the space. And um, it's cool because it's almost like it's almost like a a dandelion just kind of spitting out those seeds and they just (laughs) flutter off. And but it's it's cool that you mentioned those people, you know, because I, I think with the exception of Clay, who I haven't gotten on the show yet, I've had them all on and they've all kind of either privately or on the show mentioned their, you know, infinite as being a, a, a big part of their, their growth as a, as a piercer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been cool, but I guess to go back to your, to your original question, no, it's usually not too awkward. Um, the, the thing with infinite too, is that, um, we're very professional in that we, we've been able to take what we love, but make it very, not necessarily business-like, but it's we're a serious business. So when people leave, it's it's a business decision. You know, we I've talked to employees that like, you know, some employees like outgrow the shop and feel horrible and giving their notice and oh my god, are we still going to stay friends? But at the end of the day, like it is a business and it's a business decision. And if I can't give an employee what they need and they can find it elsewhere, like you know, God bless them. I, I sort of. Um, wish them the best so for the most part we've been pretty good and we we treat it um you know civilly and like a business like hey sorry you left but it's we know it's not personal you know even even uh you mentioned up the street you know luis garcia was an employee in i just i was looking that up the other day for my article i think it was like 98 to 2001 something like that Mm -hmm. and uh you know we didn't split on the best terms either but we're like four doors down and and um have had a really good amicable relationship for i guess a better part of a a decade now or almost two decades yeah well that that's a good point to bring up because uh i i I feel like you're not trying to be uh corporate but i think you just do a good job at at running a business and seeing it as a business because when i've when i've talked to people who have talked about like okay, I'm going to go guest there, or I'm going to start full-time there, or I'm going to leave full-time there, or whatever. They all have this clear understanding of, like, these are the terms of that employment. You know, it's it's laid out clearly. It's not it's not something where it's like, oh, I, I never knew that I would need to give notes, or something like that. Like, you, you lay things out, people, in a very clear and approachable way. Um, I haven't heard about you, like, trying to screw anybody over or anything like that. And Having a relationship where maybe a staff member leaves, goes up the street, I think a, a lot of times in a lot of different areas, that could be like a brick through the window type scenario, but but it's not, you know? Like, I'm sure there are days where Luis sends people through your door or you send people through Luis's door if, if one of the other has like a service or a piece of jewelry that the other one doesn't or something. And having that kind of relationship is a is a great model of like how to be an adult and how to be responsible in this business because... There's definitely enough pie to go around for everybody. You just have to be able to be cool, like talking about the pie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and we've, yeah, we do try to be very transparent with what we expect from people and hiring and everything from pay rate to days off. We really have formalized the process. And honestly, that's 
through trial and error and years of screwing stuff up. And, and, you know, we're usually relocating people, especially for piercing positions. So we want to be a hundred percent clear before we pull people out of state and bring them over. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a lot of trial and error. And, and two, like, I'm sure you've realized from running your studio from a, a young age that like, you feel like, well, I don't really totally know what I'm doing, but oh my God, these other people that are running their business, how are they possibly still in business? Yeah. And I think with, you know, our industry is made up of nonconformists and malcontents and whatnot. And there, there are a lot of people that, that play a lot of looser with how they play more loose with how they, they plan things and how they structure things and, you know, may make promises that were verbal promises, but, oh, things have changed. And, and I know a lot of employees that we've had have been at other shops where they, they felt like they weren't necessarily screwed, but that, that expectations or things changed unexpectedly. Sure, so, we sure. yeah, we try to go overboard with documenting exactly what we, what we offer people and what we expect from them. So well, it's good I think- that that makes it out there. Yeah, it, it, I think some of those practices, just like you said, have to be learned the hard way. So I almost kind of got the sense that your your policies are so well-crafted and so tight now because you probably had to deal with the consequences of when they weren't well-crafted and tight, you know, and you have totally. to kind of, you have to learn that stuff on your feet a lot. And uh, for, for myself, like I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out some of that stuff, you know, and I try to take the best the best things I see from shops like yours or like Bethra's shops or, you know, whoever else has like a, the machine and knows how to run the machine, you know, 23rd street or whatever. And I want to learn a, a lot about their business practices because piercing, I feel pretty comfortable. You know, I'll still obviously take classes and talk to other piercers about improving my craft, but I really want to pick the brains of people like yourself and other business owners, because that's just going to make me better at, at running my own shop. Oh, yeah, and whatever we can do to help, too, that's always been a big sort of focus, at least of mine and, and by extension the studios, is being open and forthcoming with any information we can on people. You know, everything from, you know, allowing people to reprint our aftercare as long as they give us, you know, credit for it, to, like, people that are setting up light speed, we'll, we'll talk about, like, how we arrived at our coding system. Because we've spent a whole lot of time with a whole lot of difficult stuff, and it really doesn't make sense to make everybody else spend the same amount of time to duplicate the same stuff. So we really try to be try to be helpful and you know we're in a in a really um we have the luxury of it being very we're established enough zoning is difficult enough in philly that like if you wanted to create a second infinite and open next door to us to use our information to compete against us it'd be really hard so yeah um and it's that whole like you know rising tide raises all boats so we we'd really much rather be sort of forthcoming and helpful than then the old model, often that old tattoo shop model that like you hire people away from us, you get a brick through the window sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a big difference between, especially in the modern industry, there's a big difference between like, oh, uh, you know, this shop really helped me out when I was opening or like, you know, this shop wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't even answer simple questions. Like I would much rather be the shop that inspires and helps other people. And if anything, all that's going to do is establish me as someone who knows what I'm doing. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to weaken my brand yeah. to help someone else grow theirs. Well, and, and if you remember back in the 90s, uh, you know, you'd go up to Venus in New York and if they knew you were a piercer, they'd kick you out or they <laughs> 
throw or Blake would throw sheets over the cases so you couldn't look at stuff. Like it was insane, and and we so did not want to be that because that was just really sort of silly and, and needlessly like mean and sort of I don't know vindictive or yeah. yeah. Nobody takes that well. Like I remember there were plenty of points in my career where people would be like, oh, uh, yeah, I'm not really going to talk to you about that. And be like, really? I'm just, I'm asking you where you buy your gloves. Like it really, that's a trade secret. Yeah. Um, so going back to the staffing thing, uh, because I, I would imagine a shop like yours, other busy shops, like, like you said, you don't really have the time to invest into an apprenticeship. Maybe that would be great to have all homegrown talent, but in a shop like yours, you're, you're more recruiting people in. Um, so what's your process like for that? Do you have someone on staff who like scouts? Do you keep your eyes open on social media or do you kind of keep an eye on, um, like the scholars at conference? Like what's, what's your normal routine for looking for talent? Well, that, that is a very sort of topical question now because um, we are actually in the process of opening our second studio in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. So I'll do a quick shout out to anybody that wants to apply there. Um, we are looking for piercers and ultimately counterstaff as well. And it's it's been incredibly difficult. Um, you know, as you know, the industry is – everybody's doing really well and everybody's looking for – to expand their staff. So everybody's looking for piercers. Um, where we, as far as our training, I think we've trained three apprentices. We in the his, in the 25 year history of the studio, I think we're on our fourth apprentice right now. We have someone apprenticing, um, but we're just we're busy and we really don't have just the physical geographic space in the studio to actually be able to train people. So we have historically relocated people. We try to find people with five plus years experience and, you know, convince them that Philadelphia is the place to be um, with piercing being a little more sort of centered on the West coast. It's always been hard to move people East as you probably know, versus like people wanting to move West for mm -hmm. jobs. Um, but usually, traditionally, it's been looking for people with five plus years experience and just um, getting them sort of through word of mouth. It used to be Sean Christian in Anatometal was like the job board. So <laughs> you tell him you're looking for somebody and he would make calls and like, you know, get you people. Um, but now we're finding out as we as we look for employees, five plus year piercers are really hard to come by. Everybody either has their own studio or they at least have a really good gig that they don't want to leave. Yeah. So looking more at like two and three year piercers that we have to do really a crash course in training to get them to where we would want them to to start out. Well, um, I feel like we're almost in a fortunate kind of phase right now where those those piercers with two or three years experience, that's really different than the two or three years experience I had when I started because all the information online and all the different classes and conferences, seminars and learning forums and all that stuff. So I would imagine you're probably getting people who maybe they, they have the puzzle pieces, but they just haven't figured out how to put them together in the right way yet. Yeah. And a lot of them are doing a lot more volume too. Um, so that, you know, like when we started out doing like, you know, a piercing or two a day versus like people that are already working in studios doing 10 to 20 or more. Um, but it's also tough too. I think with the internet you have, it used to be more people with a certain amount of experience and then training them or, or sort of educating them with what they're lacking. And now it becomes a lot of times 
people where you're sort of having to undo bad habits. Right. Okay. And then train them past a certain point where there's a there's a whole lot of info out there, um, and I think we tend to get we tend to see more piercers with I think oh I don't know how to put it even um, that are a little too too confident in their ways, too set in their ways, and a lot of times we have to not necessarily show them the infinite way, but be like you know look this is what you need to do for high volume studio what you're doing really works, but you need to backtrack a little bit and consider it this way. And, um, yeah, really having to, to sort of remold people too. And, um, yeah. Could you, it, it's could you actually kind of, give me maybe a, a specific, like when you say that, are you talking about their time management or their techniques? Like, is there, you know, are you trying to say, let's move you away from heavy tools into more minimal tools or, or no tools or like what, what is probably one of the more frequent things that you have to do to change people's existing habits? Uh, for specifics, um, God, I, it's, I would have to, to sort of defer you to, um, you asked earlier how in, we train people. Um, John Logger, who's at the shop now, really oversees all of our piercers and all of our education and does sort of an amazing job with that. So he's more sort of in the trenches with the specifics. Mm-hmm. Um, for what I hear him, a lot of it is even things like tray setup or basic techniques or tools. Um, you know, we don't really frown on any techniques. Like if you can justify it, you can do it freehand, you can do disposable clamps, whatever. But it's more people like, well, I've always done it this way and it's worked and are hesitant to sort of like take a right turn and do it another way. Mm-hmm. So I think I some of those, uh, the younger piercers, maybe maybe they've they've worked and they've pushed on this one technique. Now they're getting good results and they might feel a little bit apprehensive to try to pivot away from the the one solid technique they have. And I think... Uh, going into that generational thing, it's maybe more in that five to eight year window when you really start thinking like, okay, now I want to have two or three really viable methods for each kind of piercing. And then when you get to more than 10 years, then maybe you start to just go back and rethink everything. So it's got to really be an interesting process, taking someone with maybe around two or three years experience and kind of molding them into what you want in a, in a specifically uh, managed studio. Yeah. And, and sort of, trying to realize what is important about what you do. The the one thing now is, especially with the forums, that you have um, many more sort of online communities of just professionals, you know, everything from learning forum to the manager's forum and things like that. And you have a lot of, at least early piercers, sort of arguing or at least, I guess, searching for status with things like, you know, talk about statums or sort of disposable technique or things that that I would argue aren't really that the, the crux of what makes piercing important. Mm-hmm. It, I actually was thinking about it the other day. It's like that that joke where um, the uh, there's a guy who's a, a you know famous or guy who works as a photographer. His buddy comes up and he's just like, "Oh my god, your pictures are so great! You must have a great camera." And he's like, "Ah, oh, that's sort of shitty to say." Then he goes to his buddy's house, and his buddy cooks like this great meal, and he's like, "Oh my god, this meal is delicious! You must have a great oven." And it, that's I feel like a lot of at least online a lot of piercers argue that way, you know, about the how good their oven is. And at the end of the day, sure. it really doesn't make any difference. And and you know, it's really about this. You know, when you strip it down, um, 
it's about the ritual with a client and how they feel and this transformative sort of space you're creating for them and you know helping them to realize their full sort of potential in their body and things like that so um yeah i think if you spend too much time online it can get a little discouraging because it seems to be a whole lot of shop talk and not not sort of what's important i think sometimes people lose sight of like I don't know. Maybe I'm just the old guy going like, you know, oh, the kids don't understand what's important anymore. Oh, um, I do that all the time. It's okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. <laughs> I, I, I think like- it's more of like it's it's that that ether, that like unknown element, like the actual connection with the client and the satisfaction of the client. That can be one thing that's it's difficult to articulate it and it's difficult yeah. to articulate and how you quantity. create that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think when it comes down to like the stuff online, I think people do boil it down to the point where it's almost absurd. When people are talking about, hey, I put this up for, for criticism, it's not just like looking at the picture and be like, well, the piercing's straight or the piercing's not straight. They're like, I prepped with this and I use this package and I wear these gloves and I do this and I do that. And then the comments are all like, well, I wouldn't have worn that glove or I wouldn't have used that kind of package. And it's like, okay, cool, but like maybe talk about the piercing. You know, like you, you don't have to pick apart all those little things that are so similar that it's almost pointless in, in picking it apart. Um, it, but yeah, the, the conversations, like the important part of like, well, it doesn't matter. You can pick the exact same everything that I'm using, but if you're not performing the piercing correctly, that's why it's not coming out good or that's why you're having scarring or problems or this or that or whatever. And then, you know, working that stuff out and then it's like the, well, the connection to the client. Because for me, I am I'm one of those piercers who's, not disconnected from the clients, but I'm not usually trying to create like a ritual moment or like that, that vibe, unless that's what the client's mm-hmm. wanting. You know, if, if, if a client wants to just come in and get a piercing and look at it in the mirror and post on Instagram, I'm, I'm happy to facilitate that. Um, but yeah, like I see it a lot of times online with people talking in forums where they're not talking about anything important. They're just rambling about minutia and like arguing about things that are like, well, both sides are correct. Like, why even have the argument? Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's like, you know, the old argument about freehand versus clamp technique, which has turned into sort of a disposable argument, too. And at the end of the day, like, yeah, it's shop talk, and it's it's cool piercer to piercer, but it, it's not often the most important stuff, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think each shop has their own, uh, like, identity, you know? So if, if your shop is... is creating this one vibe and this other shop is going for whatever they're going for. It's, it's perfectly fine for everybody to have their own expression and own identities professionally and personally and all that stuff. But, uh, try to look at the shops that are successful and try to realize why they're successful and maybe take some, take some lessons from that, you know, uh, creating a space. Like I've, I've seen your shop at multiple at multiple points. Like, uh, I went in there once and, and, you know, you let me use a, a room for some work in an afternoon and, and then seeing it again years later where you had redone all the displays and the cases and all that stuff. And, you know, you've, you've stayed fresh as to what, what the industry is. Uh, and that's really important too, because you don't want to be a shop that's been open for 25 years and you look exactly the same yesterday as you did on day one, you know? Yeah. With like the nineties diamond plate. We have, we have a couple shops in the city like that, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. You got to grow for sure. Yeah. I've, I've, um, I've, I've moved my shop a couple of times and expanded a couple of times and each one I've tried to, I've tried to create an aesthetic for that generation of body piercing. You know, I had my uh gray and black checkered floor with red walls shop for a while and now i've got my like um you know sea foam green and like taupe 
kind of color scheme with organics and all, all that stuff, you know? So, uh, yeah, pay attention to the lessons of the current generation, the previous generations, pick and choose what, what's going to be best for your shop in your area. Yeah. Yeah, so for sure. What do you what do you see about the what do you see with the future of Infinite? So you've got you've got the shop in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that the the attention might kind of like shift and focus to that? Do you think you might step away from Infinite at some point, or is it kind of too early to to think those thoughts? Um, well, I I've stepped away from the a lot of the. A lot of the client interaction. I really don't take uh, piercings much anymore. I don't see clients as much anymore. You know, as I get older, it gets definitely harder and harder to to connect on a personal level with younger clients. You know, as I'm I'm almost fifty now, so you know, twenty something clients that are coming in to get their navels done, I have a much harder time small talking. Um, but I, I do still love the industry. I love what it's done for me, and and really what it continues to do. So I, I can't see fully stepping back. Um, I'm here in Baltimore now to sort of oversee the construction and, and um, getting the shop set up, and I'll definitely be there every day, so I really don't see stepping back from that. Um, we're putting more time and energy into our online store as well. Um, we're doing we're doing really well, too, surprisingly. Um, it's, you know, it started as sort of just an offshoot of the physical space, but now it's, it's becoming sort of a, uh, a thing of its own. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's neat. There's, there's definitely been obviously a lot of debate about the, the appropriateness of selling jewelry online and, and, um, offering it to people outside of shops. But I, on the flip side, I really like being able to offer good quality jewelry to people that really don't have access to it, either through a studio or they're too remote and sort of having a space where we, you know, we don't sell anything we wouldn't use in the studio, so I'm hoping that sort of comes off and we're able able to create a um, a space online the same as we do in the studio. You know, one that's that's obviously we really care about what we're doing. We're trying to really create the the safest and best experience, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where the online store goes, but obviously, really, really excited to see what happens here in Baltimore. Yeah, Baltimore. It's one of those cities where. Uh, you know there have been very good piercers there safe piercers there but you you don't really think of a lot of like um not a lot of of big shop names are going to pop into your mind with baltimore because i remember when i was doing more outreach stuff with app we would constantly get people being like where can i go around baltimore where can i go around baltimore and it's like okay i can give you this you know two or three people but there's not this like endless list of places that you can go so baltimore that's a great a great city to target a second shop yeah, it's a great city. There, there are a couple of people out here that are doing great stuff. There's, there's Dan Chan that's a little bit, what east of the city. There's the new shop Freya that's opened up south of here. Yep. Um, I Matt that does some good work at, at Mount Vernon. Um, uh, but, but other than that, it's mostly just sort of pockets of piercers at different tattoo shops. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so yeah, because yeah, not a lot of people are are really focusing on like that AAA piercing only kind of shop. I think a lot of people are still connected to tattooing. Yeah, yeah, and I'm hoping, yeah, I think we'll be able to do well. I think with what we have to offer and, and doing the expanded inventory and creating this special space, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm confident that we can do something similar to what we did in Philly, for sure. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, I wish you all the best because, again, it's just, it's one of those shops where you've, 
you've heard the name for so long and you've heard it connected with excellence for so long that I'm just really happy to see uh, your individual success, but also that you're sharing it with other people. You're giving other piercers their opportunity to grow and, and make a really good living and you're putting out the, the quality that you are. So it's, it's awesome to see it. So, you know, all the best in, uh, in the second shop for you. Oh, thank you so much. It, it, it's really nice to hear. And it's, yeah, it, like you said, we I was around at the right time. I put in a lot of hard work, but it's it's been great. We've had some amazing people at the studio. Um, this industry has taken me crazy places I never thought, you know, from, you know, doing the, the Point magazine to the board of directors positions to like all this other different outreach I've been able to do, you know, teaching it. BMX in Mexico, or sorry, BMX in, in Europe, and then the 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 LBX, LBP, sorry, in Mexico, and and yeah, the the industry's been good to me, and it's been it's taken me a lot of really great places, and I still really love it, and I'm I'm happy that Infinite has become such a big part of it for sure. That's great. That's great. So if there are any piercers out there that are like foaming at the mouth to get a shot in Baltimore or in Philadelphia, is there a, a specific way that you'd want them to contact you or yeah. contact someone else at the shop? Uh, best place is to contact Jess, our operations manager at office at infinitebody.com. Um, and yeah, we're looking for piercers. We're also looking for counter staff. So anybody that's interested, you know, let us know if you think you have the chops or you think you, you know, you almost have the chops and want to, Want to give us a shot? Really, anybody? Just just get a hold of us. We're pretty we're pretty upfront about what we're expecting, and if you know you're not quite what we're looking for, we'll let you know and and maybe give you some suggestions on where to go from here for sure. Awesome, that's great. Well, um, I really appreciate you taking some time to to talk to me, Jim. I'm sure you're uh, I'm sure you're really busy with everything that's going on. Oh no, it's it's been great. I know we've sort of crossed paths for a while and talked about. Um, you interviewing me, I think, at APP conference, either last time or even the time before that. So it's great we've finally been able to connect. Awesome. Uh, so uh, one last time for people, where do they find your shop info on social media and online? And is it the same address for your web shop? Yes, it's infinitebody.com is the, the big website. And then at infinitebody is Instagram and obviously Facebook. You can find us, etc. All right, great. Thanks for talking to me, James. I appreciate All right, it. Thanks so much. All right, have a good one. You too. Bye. All right. Thanks, James. I appreciate you talking to me. And uh, I always appreciate just infinite body piercing being out there in the universe. Uh, you've given a lot of uh, really excellent piercers, a lot of really excellent opportunities. And I definitely appreciate that. I'm sure they do too. If you are interested, again, in any of my uh, training seminars, I have uh, quite a few available, and I'm only going to be booking more as the, the year progresses on. So uh, please follow me at uh, on Facebook at Body Art Education by Ryan Willette. Um, if you're not already following this show on Instagram, go ahead and give Piercing Wizard Podcast a follow on Instagram and Facebook, too, for that matter, if you're on there. I'm going to be back next week. I think next week is going to be my special morning drive radio uh, episode of TJ and the Bear. Uh, TJ Kruger and Baron are going to be coming on the show. We're going to be doing an event together in Chicago in March for Stereowash. I'll be teaching a class on ethical upselling, uh, and Baron will be teaching a class on the versatility of needle blanks. Lots of different tips and tricks there. Uh, you can... Uh, Contact Sterewash or TJ Kruger directly for booking information for that. But they're going to be on the, the show next week, and we'll get into it in a little bit more detail. But uh, I appreciate you listening, and thank you again for everyone who's listening. Help us get to 100,000 overall listens for the Piercing Wizard podcast. 
it's kind of nuts. Uh, there will be a point where I'm going to probably stop doing the show weekly, but for now, I'm going to keep it going. Uh, your enthusiasm feeds me, so thank you very much. And uh, again, if you're planning to be out at the APP conference in Las Vegas, keep your eyes and ears open for the Piercing Wizard podcast live. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved. 